You are now listening to The Nosebleeds with your hosts, Kush Parikh and Corey Johnson. Be sure to check us out weekly every Monday and Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on social media on Twitter at the underscore nosebleeds, that's K-N-O-W-S bleeds, on Instagram at the nosebleeds, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the nosebleeds. Yo, what up, everybody? Welcome back to the Nosebleeds Podcast. That's K-N-O-W-S Bleeds. It's your boy. What up, y'all? It's your boy, Kush, and I'm here with my host, as always, Mr. Corey Johnson. Corey, how you doing today? I'm doing great, man. It's good to be here because we're talking about the beautiful game that everybody loves, and I just can't wait to start talking about this, man. It's going to be a great episode. Nosebleeds, let's get it. Yeah, we got got an action-packed episode and it's full of mls and soccer and with that we brought in my boy my special guest on the show to talk some soccer or football as they call it everywhere outside of america <laughs> shane patel how are you doing today shane hey yo, doing great um just a heads up for this episode for um every time i talk about the sport it's going to be football and not soccer but thank you for having <laughs> me tonight I'm glad to be here, and as Corey said, to talk about and to share the beauty of the beautiful game. Yes, let's do it. So let's start off with on this day, July 9th, in sports history, we're taking it back to 2006, the FIFA World Cup hosted by Germany. It was in the finals. Italy beats France 5-3 to in penalties after tying 1-1 after extra time to claim the World Cup. This match was known for the infamous Zidane Zidane's headbutt towards Italy's Marco Matrazzi. So, do you guys remember where you were watching this match, or do you guys just remember this match in general? I mean, how can you not like uh, remember the 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 infamous headbutt from Zidane, and just like everybody talks about, it, like that that really was an infamous one because. Uh, that action, I, I believe, if I'm wrong, uh, correct me, but I think that was his last, like, real chance at, you know, getting uh, another World Cup. Uh, with that was his, that was his last uh, match in France uniform. Exactly. So, I mean, to go out like that, get red carded in the biggest game, on the biggest stage, and then your team lose – I mean, that, that, that probably still kind of like that type of stuff kind of like has to be on your mind. And uh, you just kind of don't get over that. I think it kind of reminds me of like with Chris Weber with the timeout situation mm. and, and costing his team. But like for him, Zidane, he cost his team in a way like he wasn't even on the field for majority of the game. So what kinda... about you, Shane? You remember yep, that? Of course. Of course. I remember it. Um I actually love that we're talking about this because this is exactly why I love football. Um, I learned this from one of my favorite coaches. Ironically, I'm an Arsenal fan, but I love football first and then club second. So, Mauricio Pochettino. 
um, great coach and great manager had a wonderful time with Spurs. And he basically writes in his book about how football is emotion exemplified. And it's basically what it means to be human, the highs, the lows, the joys, the sorrows. Now we go back to this day in 2006. Probably one of the biggest days for Zidane. He's about to retire. He knows he's had a glorious career. He's won a World Cup already. It's his time, basically. It's a chance for France to win their second World Cup in eight years. And still, emotion gets the best of him. It's 1-1. And what causes the outburst from him? It was something um, maybe Matarazzi said. I'm not too sure. But this is football to you. It's emotion. And even though at the biggest stage where he almost had it for his country and his team, emotion came in the way. And this is why I love the game. Yeah, 100% agree. Like, uh, And then that was such a big moment with Italy getting it and being able to, to hoist it up. And uh, what's just been so crazy about these, these past World Cups, um, not including this last one, but if you look at dating even back to 2006, so 2006, Italy wins the World Cup. Then you fast forward to 2010. They don't even get out of the group stage. And then that same year, I believe it was Spain, they win the World Cup. Four years later in 2014, they don't get out of the group stage. Germany in 2014, they win it. And then 2018, they don't even get out of the group stage. They finish rock bottom in their group in the 2018 World Cup. So, I mean, it's a bit of an omen there. Yeah, Yeah, it's a bit of an omen um, there. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that because it's got me thinking, like, maybe these are transitionary times in the national squad. So, say, when you do win the World Cup, like the cycle of peaking, is this team winning the World Cup when you have most of your players at their peak of the career, maybe like 28, 29, maybe some 25, 26. But then once you win the World Cup as a player in your prime, I think it becomes easy to be like, hey, I'm going to focus on club football now because club football is what's going to take me the distance. I've gone as far as I could with the national team. And then it's this whole project for the national team to kind of rebuild. You lose all of these experienced players that have been there for so long, gone through everything, won a World Cup. And then you have these young players who still need that little bit grooming, you know, because it's a completely different ballgame. You can be awesome at, your, at club level at maybe 19, at 22, at 23. But when you're playing, and this is why I love what the MLS is doing right now, when you're playing in a tournament like the World Cup, it's almost like you're in alien land. You're at a neutral venue. You're in a foreign country where everyone is together. You're playing a format that you're not really used to playing, where, you know, one game you start off the competition badly and that's it for your tournament. The second game, it's like, it's just completely different. So I can, maybe now I'm seeing that this might be something in the form of a transitionary change, but very interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, because four years, man, it just shows you how, how long, because you don't be thinking that four years is a long time, but it is a long time because players get old, players get injured, players are not the same. And I just, I'm just remembering, like, with, the, with Germany, like, how they dominated in 2014. And then in 2018, they just did not look the same at all. And so that, that can happen very easily if, uh, like you said, you're not constantly reloading with, uh, with talent. Yeah, it's going to yep, be – either, either, yeah. I don't, know if, I don't know if France is going to – I don't think they can get knocked out of the group stage. Like, you guys are talking about them being in their prime when the last one – I mean, they still have – 
young studs on their team as well. You look at Pogba, you look at Mbappe. I, I don't know if they can get out of – or they'll definitely be, get out of the group stage. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. Like, they should get out of the group stage. But I mean, then All again, the look, that they have, they're good. probably, like, the most talented and deep team out of – out of majority of the countries, I think that they have probably the most the most uh, talent. Yeah, they might even go on and win another one. Who knows? Um, I agree. With, I uh, think like the, the, the problem I think with that with that though probably that would probably uh, stop them is like injuries or um, players not on form because it's it's hard to come into a World Cup where um, guys are not playing well. And that's the same thing that kind of like, you know, was happening with Germany. And not a lot of guys for Germany were on form entering that, that tournament. And so like uh, Shanae said, uh, when you enter this tournament, you don't be thinking that uh, if we lose, then bang, that puts us in a really bad spot. So, cause it's only, it's only three games that you get to play and you kind of have to make sure you take advantage of those first two matches so that way you don't have to be um, checking the standings <laughs> every 20 seconds to see are you going to make it to the, the next round. Yep, yep. Although this one might be a different ball game completely because we're playing in Qatar. So even with France having all of these things, that even though they might be poised best to maybe even get out of the group stage and break this omen or whatever it is, like, you're playing in the desert, you're playing in hot temperatures, you're playing in a country that is not really known as a football nation. So, this next one is going to be very, very interesting regardless. True. Yeah, that it is. Next World Cup will be 2022. Um, Shane, let's talk a little bit about yourself and your background with football as a fan. And also, uh, you worked with LAFC as well for a good amount of time. So, just talk about that a little bit. I did. I fell in love with the game in maybe 2001, watching the Arsenal. Of, I fell in love with, uh, or rather the player that made me fall in love with the game was Thierry Henry. So we had Thierry Henry, we had Dennis Bergkamp, we had Sylvain Viltor, we had Robert Perez, we had uh, Vieira in the middle, we had Fred Jungberg, we had Gilberto Silva, and you just name it. And it's just like everywhere you look and it's just like dry and this whole camaraderie and I was like really enjoying the kind of football they were playing not just kind of like you know playing football playing the long ball going to win but it was almost like it was art you know almost in motion and obviously this was Arsene Wenger's side the next year then 2003 they went on to do what nobody has done yet which is win the league without losing a single game and I don't think people realize how difficult that is to do over 38 games 38 games is basically from August to May, going through an entire year through the seasons with injuries, with ups, with downs. And it was just a tremendous feat to achieve back then. So I fell in love watching them and I started playing football shortly after. And that was it for me. You know, I was just hooked. I was like, wow, like this game is fast-paced. This game has a lot of um, tactical stuff into it. There's just a lot under the lines. And yeah, it was that. And then... Um, I moved over here to go to university 2013 and continue playing football um, at school with friends and stuff, you know. But for some reason, it's like, yeah, we wake up at 5, 6 in the morning to watch the Arsenal game or to catch what's happening in the Premier League. But I'm like, hey, like, what's going on over here? And then shortly after, um, we found out that LA is bringing a second team. And I was immediately 
um, kind of interested in it when I realized that they were going to call it Los Angeles Football Club and, you know, kind of bring that football culture to a city like Los Angeles, which is basically the world city. And what they had all over the stadium was uniting the world city through the world's game. And I was like, wow, like these guys are serious. These guys aren't, you know, joking around. You have Galaxy down the road. I mean, Galaxy is in Carson. They're not really in LA. And it's like, okay, Galaxy is maybe a team or this thing, but they're not a football club. It's not where, um, you know, you feel at home. So um, I just finished university and this was their first year back in 2018. And um, I was just looking online, trying to, um, I've always believed that if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. And if you truly go after what you want to do in life, it will come. And so I've kind of just been reading and figuring out. And then I saw a job opening at LAFC. Um, It was hospitality based, mainly to take care of VIP guests, uh, including families of um, team members. people on the team, players on the team and owners. And I was like, hey, wow, like this is an opportunity, you know, kind of to see what's happening from the inside because this is literally ground zero. This is season one of starting and launching a long-term project to actually grow football in the country. Like I felt, you know, you just have a feeling. It's like when I went to meet them, my interview, you go see the stadium. Like I just had a feeling that they were doing this for all the right reasons and they truly wanted to grow the sport in um, this country. Um, so yeah, I was part of the first season, part of the breaking into the stadium, the first game, I pretty much worked in and around the players' tunnels and the dressing rooms, would walk around Carlos Vela, would say what up to Mark Anthony Kay, who I think is awesome, um, and take care of, you know, all of their girlfriends and their wives and their kids and their parents that came to the game, just making sure that they felt at home. And to me, this was a dream come true. Don't forget, I'm an Arsenal fan. And I used to watch Carlos Vela before Carlos, anybody in this country even knew who Carlos Vela was. He played for Arsenal and he was silky. Like, it's a shame that he couldn't go on to kind of be the star. But he was young and, you know, kind of like just casually chipping the ball over the keeper, scoring free kicks, like curling it into the top corner. And I was like, wow. But at the same time, it's like in that, posi- in that position, it's so competitive in the Premier League that we had so, I mean, I, I think at that time, if I'm not mistaken, we had Robin Van Persie, we had Theo Walcott, who was given the number 14 jersey. And there was a lot of pressure because he was following after Thierry Henry. And he never really broke into the team. He went to Spain, he went to Real Sociedad. He did okay over there. And then suddenly LAFC announced, hey, like, Carlos Vela is basically the face of LAFC. And it made so much sense to me. And it's one thing kind of seeing all of this, but I was able to watch um, training sessions where they had open training sessions before the first season started in the stadium itself. And you see him move and you see, you know, people talk about Messi, how he moves, he glides. And Vela was doing the exact same thing. It doesn't matter that he was doing it over here and, and maybe against a much lesser opposition, but he was still doing it. Like you could see he was just in his element. He was flowing. And there were so many other players. The Chief Blessing is another one from Ghana. Um, that we had in the first season. We had Laurent Siman, who is uh, from Belgium, was here. He was our first captain. We had Tyler Miller in goal, who was pretty solid. Uh, John D. Harvey on the left. Um, Stephen Bedeshur on the right. So that was basically, I was part of the entire season where we got to be part of it. We watched games. We kind of won together. We lost together. And then um, my first love is with aeroplanes before my love with football. So I moved to work with aeroplanes for the time being. So I'm no longer with the club. 
um, but I still follow them and I still believe in the long-term project of actually being a proponent of growing this sport in the country. Yeah, we're, we'll definitely get into Carlos Vela and LAFC. But yeah, just knowing, coming all the way from across the world, from Mumbai, India, all the way to LA and sharing the love and trying to spread the love of the sport, that the world's sport, I should say, the number one sport. So we'll definitely talk about that in the episode. But let's talk about the MLS right now. Um, the MLS is back with the MLS's back tournament. That's what it's called. It's a World Cup-style tournament. 25 teams are divided into six groups. Each team will play three group stage games, and these results will count towards the regular season standings after the tournament, and the winner of the entire tournament will get a place in the 2021 CONCACAF Champions League, and they will be uh, awarded with $1.1 million in prize pool. So what are your guys' thoughts on the MLS coming back? They just played on June 8th. The, the first team sport, or I should say men's team sport, to play in America. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Uh, I think that it's, it's, it's great that MLS is doing this, like as far as having a, a tournament style. And I think that sometimes you kind of get caught up with like a regular season and you pay attention as much as you can, but – um, I just think of like, you know, sometimes with baseball or sometimes with uh, even the NBA or NHL, sometimes you kind of just get too bombarded with like everything. It's just like so much is going on. But when you have like a tournament style set up where every game is crucial, it's, it's sort of like um, like we were talking about with the World Cup, like you can't afford to lose any games. Obviously, you know, with, you know, when it's regular season, you can't afford to lose any games or you don't want to drop points. But still, like, when it's like this, when it's a tournament style, you feel like if you don't bring your A game every single time you step on the field, it can be a costly day and it could end up uh, making you have to uh, hope and pray that you can advance on into the tournament. And I think that the MLS should probably have this style going forward because it will make more fans kind of appreciate uh, the, the the World Cup and it'll make more fans not feel out of place when the World Cup comes around, if that makes sense. This being this being the first uh, sport in the U.S., uh, Shani, I'll ask you this. How does the MLS need to utilize getting all eyes to be on them and gaining fans to, to you know, revolve around soccer? Well, this kind of um, works in favor and against the ML and against the MLS. I think that this is great right now. Um, kind of um, using this time to when um, there's again a spike of cases in the country where people are kind of going back home, and this is the only sport that we have. So in the past, when football has been kind of maybe number four in this country, number five, it's like, hey, we're all home now. There's nothing else to do. This is an entertaining form of the sport that's kind of being packaged to us so we can watch. And don't forget that once the cup gets over, the league still goes back. So I think the goal is to do as well as possible right now so that when we do go back to the league, we're able to get a percentage of people to kind of you know transition to that and still follow the MLS. I think um, it's a great opportunity to kind of broaden this football community that we have. Um, I also um, kind of am proud of and I agree with what the MLS has done in terms of taking a stand. Like, 
look at what the Premier League has done. The Premier League has restarted, but we're taking all of these measures. So the players are all together. They have their own kind of uh, living quarters. They have their own um, shared spaces where they're playing video games. They're playing card games. And don't forget that all of this adds to team camaraderie. All of them are in this together. This is actually going to help with team building. And I think in the long run, when they're on the pitch, like all of this is going to show on the pitch. The downside is we still are in a pandemic and we have to accept the decision of players like Carlos Vela to not play. And if you're trying to get people into the sport right now that would not follow the sport, you want your best players to be out there. You want them to be an advert for the sport so that when we do continue into regular season, people are like, hey, remember that guy? Remember that guy? Remember that guy? Yeah, that's him. But unfortunately, we're not going to have as many of them. But I'm still glad that we're doing this so that there's kind of uh, more of like, a, hey, MLS is the sport and we're here and we're playing and we're going to host the World Cup in, what, six years' time now? So this is something that we should all get into. Um, so yeah, in terms of utilizing that, um, I don't know what more the MLS can do other than capitalize on the fact that there's no other sport going on right now and continue to keep all of the health and safety protocols that they have in place so that we don't have to pull the plug on the tournament. Um, if things go out of hand, uh, Commissioner Don Garber has said that um, we're going to stop the tournament. So I'm hoping that we're able to keep this bubble contained and we're able to see some good football. Um, we'll go into this maybe later, but this is a great opportunity, not just for coaches, but also for players to kind of... Uh, you know, experiment with stuff, with systems, with different plays. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm excited. I also think that um, there's a reason that we celebrate these players as celebrities. Um, and at a time like this, when people are at home and they need something to watch and cheer, I think that there comes some sort of responsibility where, hey, we're going to keep them safe, but these are the people we celebrate and they're going to give you something to cheer about right now. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean... The MLS kicked off Wednesday night with Orlando FC and Inter Miami. And we saw uh, the man of the match was Nani, who was a star in the Premier League. And we've seen the MLS has gone the route of signing aging international stars who have been successful in the European soccer league. But in their latter parts of their career, they decided to come over to the MLS because they know they'll still receive that stardom that they had back in the European leagues. I mean, you look at notable players that have come over, it, David Beckham, Slavin yep. Ibrahimovic, Thierry Henry, Kaká, Wayne Rooney, Drogba, David Villa, Lampard, like the list goes on. So with that being said, should the MLS continue to search for international stars to grow their brand? Or do you think they should concentrate more on homegrown talent? I think, I think that um, when you look at all the leagues around the globe, um, one advantage that I think that they definitely have over the MLS, other than the fact that they are more established than the MLS, is just the fact that they have more homegrown talent. You look at the Premier League, for example, there are so many young English stars that everybody across the globe knows. Like a lot of people are looking at Phil Foden from Manchester City. People know Raheem Sterling. People know... Um, they're starting to know who Mason Greenwood is at Manchester United. Uh, also Marcus Rashford, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And one of the differences between, you know, like that versus uh, here in the U S as far as MLS goes, 
when you think of MLS, the first thing you think of are international stars like Chicharito, Hernandez, and Carlos Vela. And so it isn't to say that that is um, completely a bad thing because it's like, would you rather, uh, you know, not have those guys be in the league and your, and your league be completely irrelevant? No, but it is something to be said of having homegrown talent and developing your homegrown talent into star players that will eventually be able to go on to the likes of the Premier League or go on and play in the likes of the Bundesliga or wherever the case may be. Because I'm just thinking, like, if you have these young stars and you see them in the MLS and then you see them get promoted into the, the, the national team, like, that makes such a huge difference because you're constantly seeing these guys and you're constantly – developing their stories and you're constantly seeing them grow as players and it's going to just make fans of the game and those who want to be fans of the game like if you're constantly seeing it on ESPN if you're constantly seeing it on social media these guys are tearing it up in MLS and then they get um you know bought by a a big time uh club in, in Europe that's gonna continue to want you to follow the story like I think the reason that it's so good right now that fans are paying attention here in the United States of what's going on in the Premier League, more specifically with Chelsea, is because of Christian Pulisic. Now, when he first signed there, everybody thought like, oh, they're just signing him so that they can get that, you know, that you, the you, they can get fans from the U.S. to buy merchandise or pay attention to the club or whatever the case may be. But the fact that Frank Lampard, the manager there, has been playing him and he's been playing well, already has, I believe, eight goals in the Premier League this season and has been flourishing, that gets more people to watch. That gets more – that's more traction here in the U.S. for people to want to continue to watch the game. And I think that does nothing but good things for your game going forward. And it does nothing but good things for the international team going forward because if Pulisic is lining up against – uh, against likes of Pugba, against, uh, you know, all these different international stars, when he gets back to the U.S. men's national team and, and faces off against, you know, these top-tier clubs, he's not afraid anymore or, he's not, or he doesn't have to be intimidated by these guys because he plays against them week in and week out. So I think that is something that definitely needs to more so happen in the MLS. Not only do they need to develop their own talent, but they need to develop talent that is good enough and is and has the same notoriety enough as these younger talents around the uh, around Europe that can get bought by the big clubs and even like you know I know he's not uh, obviously American but you look at the Canadian uh, uh, Alfonso Davis with uh, Bayern Munich and what he's doing so I mean like just 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 stuff like that and, and having players get bought by bigger teams. I think that does great things for the MLS because that continues to put their league on the map that grows the game here locally. And that helps people want to watch where those players go and what their careers turn out to be. Here's the thing though. The goal is to develop a Pulisic and to have Pulisic ball in a league in our country. Um, yeah, for I this to happen, um, kind of um, from what I've learned is that there needs to be drastic changes at the grassroots. Um, so I don't know if you know how poorly MLS football players are paid. They're paid peanuts. 
um, young athletes in this country are basically disincentivized growing up to consider football as a career because of how badly these people are paid. If you compare um, to the NBA, you compare to baseball, you compare to NFL, there is no money going into this game. And that's a problem. The second problem is it doesn't help that it is so expensive for families over here to fund their kids' football. So I don't know if you know about this whole model that exists called pay-to-play. The yeah. only way you can pay, play for a club is if you pay. And this automatically is taking out most of the talent pool that could represent clubs in this country, that could represent um, the national team. Real talent is, okay, maybe you have like players coming out on your beautifully manicured pitches and stuff, but real talent isn't over there. The real people that can play, the real talent is in the streets. In the streets, these, yeah, absolutely. These kids, these kids cannot afford to play for these clubs. If they cannot afford to play for these clubs, your scouts in all MLS clubs and your scouts for the national team and everywhere, they're not looking at these kids. These kids play on the streets, they play Sunday league, they play for fun, and that's it. That's gone. And I don't think people realize how wide the gene pool is in this country um, in terms of there being people from literally all over the world. And only if we kind of change this whole system where we scout talent and we reward talent for talent. And it's not about, hey, I can pay 5,000 bucks for this soccer season, football season, and my kid plays. What about this guy? This guy will, one-on-one, he'll beat your child maybe 10 times, score 10 goals, and he can't afford to play. And this is how the Mbappes are born. Mbappe grew out in, he grew out what they call the Banyas, like in the suburbs of Paris, where you literally play on gravel. Now you have to understand what this does for a player. It makes you think, it makes your head move faster and it makes your feet move faster. There's no way to judge where the ball is going to go. There's a stone over there. The ball's going to hit the stone. The, stone, the ball's going to, the stone's going to throw the ball in another direction. These people intuitively know through experience and playing in these rugged patches where the ball is going to go. Five years later, you put them on a pitch, you put them on a manicured pitch that's been, you know, that's perfect. They're using their know-how from playing in the streets to playing in this pitch. And that's how they run circles around everyone. So there needs to be grassroots changes over here where we kind of even, you know, tell people like, hey, this is an, it's a viable profession. Like professional football players in this country actually get paid well. You'll be able to be comfortable in your life. You'll pay. Let's not forget the lifespan of a or even a football player it's like by the time you're 32 you're 33 like that's you have to make or you have to work from your 20s to your late 30s as much as people would have the opportunity to work well into their 60s given that maybe half or more than half of these players will not retire to still be in the game as a coach what do you do when you're 35 you play then you're done it's like okay like now what do I do making this much money as a footballer, like it just doesn't work. So I think the first thing we need to do to develop our talent in this country is structural changes and then actually utilize and harness all of this to create a national team, which I think can win the World Cup if we kind of just develop this right. Yeah, I agree. Like when you look at um, the, the, the powerhouses around the world, like the Brazils, the, the, the Frances, and, and, and you look at how they're structured, they start with like young academies of kids, like so, so, so young. And you don't see that here. You don't see that in the United States. You don't see the level of the same level of investment. And granted, football is way more like a, a it's, it's more 
uh, it's the sport in other countries versus here where, like you said, on the totem pole, majority of the time it's like fourth or fifth. And I think the way you kind of have to get it to be a priority is you have to make it a priority. Like you were talking about with uh, you'll never work a day in your life if it's something that you love. That's what you kind of have to get people here um, that care about the game to realize is that you have to go and make it happen. You have to make the talent get there some way, somehow, because you'll always be that team that occasionally has an upset here or there. But if we, if you're talking about like wanting to create a powerhouse, like a, a team, like the U S is one of the teams that is favored to win a world cup someday, then yeah, like you said, it, it, it can't be all on the shoulders of like just a Pulisic or just one player because that, that one, I don't care what what sport it is one man cannot lead or cannot uh carry an entire team he can do so for a certain amount of time but i don't i just don't think that for for how for how competitive and for how hard it is to to win a world cup we've seen like with the likes of even messi and cristiano ronaldo yep yep i was hard just gonna to say win a, yep. it's hard to win a world cup you and the only way you can do it is with talent around the player and a team structure. You can't just be like Messi, go out and win us a World Cup. Or Cristiano Ronaldo, go out and win us a World Cup. It just doesn't work that way. When people people forget, like I give credit to like Ronaldo for what he did in those Euros, but that was a team because defensively Portugal somehow were able to finesse their way and win because because they they went to penalties. So many different times in the Euro, uh, I think it was Euro 2016, where they upset France in the final. So, I mean, it takes a team. And, 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 and don't hard. forget that, uh, don't forget that Messi had around him Di Maria, he had Higuain, right. he had Aguero, he had Dybala, he had all of these people around him, and he still couldn't do it. Exactly. So, so I you, mean, need, you need a team. Yep. And, I mean, that being said, you usually start from the back. And for some reason, the U.S. has been unique in providing amazing goalkeepers. Yes. From, K- from Casey Keller, we had uh, Tim Howard. You had, uh, who's that? Brad Guzan was good. We had Friedel, Bob Friedel. And it's like, okay, like we're creating all of these amazing goalkeepers. Like, what's happening with the rest of the field? And then your women's team is so good. So it's like, okay, like you have an amazing women's team that just kind of dominates. It's like, what is happening with the men's sport? And I also think like some part of this is for some reason, this country always tries to be like, hey, like we exist in this world, but we're kind of like separate from you guys. Like we're US, you guys are the rest of the world. I'm like, dude, that's not like, that's not how this works in football. Like if you do that, you're going to be left behind. And part of that reason is like, hey, we have our own sports. We have, uh, we don't even call it football. We call it soccer. Like, how's that? We have baseball, we have NFL, we have NBA, we have hockey, like, we don't exist in this world. We don't play football. And that's not how this works. Uh, these other sports are great. Like, I'm glad that we have all these other sports. But at the end of the day, we still exist in this world. And the entire world, for some reason, says football is the sport of the world. And we over here are just like, no. So it's like, uh, just like this whole mentality change that will then lead to a structural change 
put in some more funding that needs money to go into grassroots to kind of uh, be more inclusive let's not forget all of this talent in the streets that i'm talking about it's it's like maybe like uh, immigrants and descendants of immigrants that come from south america that come from central america and part of this whole pay to play it's like it's about inclusivity it's like yes we all live in this country together and these people are bringing something great from their country this is something shared around the world we need to learn to be more inclusive and i do think that we are in a pivotal time right now where i am an optimist and i hope that we're moving towards that which is only good news for the sport because as we shift our mentality as our country i mean i've been here what maybe 7 years so as this country continues to shift its mentality i think this sport will continue to grow yeah i i 100% agree with you like as far as growing the game i think like it starts it starts with homegrown talent i think that that would be a big big boost to the game being grown in the in the united states right and let's go back to the mls i mean well with the mls the whole tournament coming back i mean they're going to be missing one of their best players shane mentioned it before Mexican forward of LAFC, Carlos Vela, he's not going to be participating in this MLS's back tournament. And LAFC announced on Tuesday that he – or sorry, on Monday that his absence is due to his wife being pregnant. And Vela is coming off an MVP season where he scored 36 goals, 11 assists in 33 matches, and he helped LAFC to a conference championship appearance in the franchise's second season in the MLS. So this guy's a baller. So, I mean, with, with Vela's absence, I mean, LAFC loses their best player, but also the MLS loses arguably their best player as well. So, how big of a loss is it, not only for LAFC, but the MLS in general? So, I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's like this just shows how much work we, has, we have to do as a league. It's like one player says, oh, I can't play. It's like, damn. Like, it's like, dude, like, life doesn't stop. It to me highlights the amount of work or the gap that we need to close between the Bellas and the Stars and everyone else. So that when something like this happens, it's like, hey, like we still have 10 other players on the pitch. And given that he's amazing and he's been balling, um, I just think that a broader and a stronger player base in the future as we continue to develop the sport will help us stay away from uh, problems like this. But getting into the nitty-gritties of like the system and the headache for Bob Bradley, Bob Bradley probably has been aware of uh, Vela not traveling for quite some time now. And the LAFC operates in a system where we have three up top, usually two wide players, which is Vela and Diego Rossi. And uh, through the middle, we have uh, Dio. And we have Bradley Wright Phillips now, who's coming from the New York Red Bulls. Um, your typical kind of number nine striker hovering around the box is always there to put it in, making those late runs. Um, so we are going to miss Vela on one of the sides, but we also have Latif Blessing um, can play. And he usually plays wide, but for some reason, through the start of the season, last couple of months, um, Bob Bradley has been using him, which to me was a little bit confusing because he's so short. He has this uh, low center of gravity that we call, which just makes it so easy for him to move. And watching him play, it's like he knows how to either touch the, um, you know, kind of touch the line on the side, um, and at the same time time his run behind the defender to get in. So I was a little bit confused with that, but he can fill in. And then there's Brian Rodriguez also, um, who is again developing as a talent. And then in the middle, um, someone who could also fill, uh, fill in 
Um, it's funny is Adrian Perez. I don't know if you've seen him play, but he got um, a bunch of minutes. He was actually um, in a preseason camp last season and he did really well. So LAFC said, hey, you should um, sign on. We actually went to LMU at the same time and he lived with some of our fraternity brothers. So growing up, like we'd kick the ball around like while in college and we'd see him out at parties and stuff. And then suddenly I go to LAFC and I'm like, Wow, Adrian, that's Adrian, sick. So Adrian Perez is actually with the team. Uh, with the team, he's traveled to Florida and is very much in contention to start. Um, that being said, I also hope that this is a short-term kind of thing. That if this does um, kind of follow through successfully and we are able to keep it safe, the regular season will restart after that. So we will still see Vela. Um, it's not that he's going away. It's like maybe in August when we restart and it's safe for us to do things. Um, Carlos Vela will be there um, but I'm excited for the tournament regardless and it will be exciting to see how LAFC can adapt and how far they would go without him. Yeah, well, I, I think like, just, just to put like in, in context um, I agree like 100% like as far as uh, he was saying like uh, with Vela missing out, it's like Man, like in a league that needs stars, that is 100% not what you needed. You did not need one of your biggest stars, if not like Kushet, the biggest star to be like, yeah, I, I don't feel comfortable. And, you know, my girlfriend is pregnant. I, I, I just don't want to do that. So I I think like if it, it would be crazy, like if LeBron decided like, oh, I don't want to return to the NBA. But, I mean, you still got great storylines in the NBA. You still got Zion with the Pelicans. You still got Jay Morant. You still got, um, um, obviously, uh, Giannis. You still got Kawhi. You know, you got all these different stars across the league. And I think, like, a league like the MLS that's, like, kind of searching for stars or kind of searching for uh, guys to, like, market their entire uh, league after – it kind of sucks that uh, Carlos Vela won't be there, but um, I just think that if if maybe during this tournament somebody like you know out of nowhere comes and maybe steals the show and kind of just captures everybody's attention, I think that would probably be like the best case like scenario uh, to maybe like try to market or try to gain a, a attention via like social media or uh, TV or whatever the case may be. Uh, is probably the best thing going forward. But I think LAFC, um, they have, like, still a lot of talent. Even though, even though they're going to be missing Vela, I think that Bradley Wright Phillips, like, he, he's a gold machine. <laughs> and he's been a gold machine in years past. So uh, I, I think that he's probably going to be the guy going forward. Yep, I agree. Also, um, just MLS as a whole, um, it's going to be interesting because obviously now they're allowed five, uh, five substitutions. So... Um, I was reading this article on The Athletic, which I fully recommend. Amazing platform with in-depth um, articles. It's kind of like a no-bullshit thing. Um, and there was a study posted by 21st Club, which is a football consulting firm, to determine which teams are best equipped for this tournament. So they used their player ranking model to determine the difference in quality between field players 1 to 10 and 11 to 17 for each team in the MLS. And these results were plotted against each team's versatility in terms of different positions for each individual player. So how can or how well can a particular player adapt to play in another position? So you look at, uh, for example, Joshua Kimmich. 
at Bayern Munich. It's like you'd say he's versatile because he can play right back, he can play in front, so many positions, like a right midfield. Exactly. So that's what I mean by versatility. The study exactly was looking at the difference in quality between um, your starting eleven and your reserves. And they found that not only did the New York Red Bulls have the smallest difference in quality between the starters and the reserves, but they were also the most versatile team in the league. Which means if you have five substitutes, don't forget you're playing in the scorching heat in Orlando. Okay, things are different. You're going to have to rotate. This league is going to be, or this tournament is going to be, have systems that all your different players can fit into. So even though you're rotating your squad, taking five players out and putting five players in is changing 50% of your squad. Number one is your goalkeeper and then you have 10 more. You take five out, that's half your squad gone. But at the same time, at the 60th minute, the 65th minute, you're not going to change your entire system. So you basically need to have players that can come on and still continue playing in that system. They also had um, LAFC, meanwhile, with the study, had the second best bench in the MLS, but they had one of the largest differences between starters and bench. So what happens, maybe 63rd minute, you want to get, or you have to rotate rather, because your players haven't been playing for that long. There's maybe going to be muscle injuries. Uh, people are not your match fit, but they're not really match fit. And you put these other players in that, um, you have this difference between starters and the bench, but will the team be as good with such a large gap between your playing eleven and the people that aren't playing? So it's kind of like, okay, if the Red Bulls have this least distance between the two, you would think that even when they rotate, because their bench is so strong, according to the stats, nothing would change. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens in, on those lines when this whole thing restarts. Yeah, and I mean, just like the bad news with Carlos Vela, there's more about bad news in the MLS. I mean, FC Dallas has withdrawn from the entire tournament due to 10 players and a coach testing positive for COVID-19. And I mean, this causes the tournament to have 25 teams participating rather than the 26. And that kind of puts the groups in a, in a disadvantage because now one group has uh, six teams it kind of puts them in a in a disadvantage. But, I mean, how fearful should teams, players, and the MLS be for teams withdrawing from the tournament, Corey? It's a just it's just a tough situation with COVID-19. I mean, um, you obviously want to be con- concerned about uh, stuff like that happening. Um, I mean, it's kind of, like, crazy how one st- – like, I think it was just, like, a few days ago before the tournament had kicked off, and before it was uh, being announced, like they were talking about how they uh, were testing the players or they were testing, they were doing testing in the MLS. And I believe it was like a very, very small amount of players tested positive and things were looking up, things were looking bright. And then like you get this news about FC Dallas and it's just like, whoa, what the heck? But that's kind of what the case has been as far as this whole COVID-19. It just seems like there's new developments happening every single day every single uh every single week and so um you know i'm i'm not going to sit here and be uh you know a negative nancy or anything like that but just just got to be optimistic that um hopefully that they'll still be able to go forth with the tournament but if things kind of get out of hand like shanae was saying then uh, I think the best thing to do is to obviously put the players and the coaches and everyone's health uh, at the forefront and and make sure that their their uh, safety and health is a main priority and a main concern. 
Yep, I agree. And uh, I mean, it is what it is. We accept, we get along with it. And uh, again, being optimistic that it will be okay. It does change a few things in terms of, but um, I was also reading that um, they think that these cases with FC Dallas probably happened or with whatever teams, uh, Nashville, I think, happened before these people flew into Orlando. So I think Orlando is still a bubble. And uh, we also trust that the league is doing regular testing and nobody from outside the bubble or nobody from inside the bubble goes outside, vice versa. Um, so I think we can pull this off. Um, Texas, of course, has been a hotspot for this. So it's unfortunate that that has happened. Um, I don't know what this will mean for um, MLS league standings also because points from the group stages are going to count towards that. Um, so they might figure out what it is with that. But I hope, I do hope that players play with freedom. It's no fun watching players play with what we used to call the handbrake or fear. Um, you got to be fearless when you're on the field and you got to express yourself. So I hope that these things are not lingering at the back of their heads. And just the fact that there's constant testing and these tests are negative should be enough for these players to go out on the field and give their all. Agree. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Tuesday, there's also been talks about Nashville SC status in the tournament. And then because they have five confirmed positive tests. So I, I hopefully we don't have another team dropping out. But uh, let's move to more of an international scale of soccer. I mean, we were talking about it throughout the episode. But I mean, the World Cup is coming in 2026 in North America. And it's being hosted by the US, Canada and Mexico. And majority of the games will be played in the US. But I mean, what does the U.S. need to do to ensure that they have enough fans in the U.S. and, and just football or soccer fans representing their country? I think that the, the biggest thing is this should be a time in which you're – I think of it as like, um, well, like a movie production, you know what I mean? Like uh, before the movie drops, you have like you know, several trailers that come out. And I think that this MLS tournament and this MLS season should act like a bit of a, a trailer um, and, 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 and kind of give some give pe- not only fans of the game, but outside uh, just like sports fans in general and people who don't really like pay attention to the game a lot as, as, as a bit of a hype train, something that people can watch and be like, whoa, like, okay this isn't like what I kind of like expected about when, when you think of uh, uh, football or soccer, but a lot, a lot of times, like, I think the biggest thing is like uh, besides there being so many, like a plethora of, of sports to compete with. I think it's also when, when you just look at the game, a lot of times people get a bit disinterested um, watching because sometimes the casual fans don't understand what's happening. They don't understand that, uh, a team is shifting their formation or they don't understand build up play. They don't understand tactics. They don't understand, you know, things like that. So it's also, I think the on the job of the commentators to make the game interesting. I remember one time I was watching a champions league game. I think it was Real Madrid versus uh, Manchester United. And for whatever reason, Fox sports decided to have Gus Johnson 
as a commentator. <laughs> and so this dude, Gus Johnson, was making every attack sound like it was about to be a goal. Even, like, when a player would get, like, the ball stolen away from him, like, every attack felt like, oh, something about to happen here. Like, you know, I, I, I don't know what's about to happen, but something's about to happen here. And when Gus a goal Johnson. actually did happen, I hopped out my seat and I was like, yo. What the heck? Like, Gus Johnson is the god of commentating. I mean, exactly. he can make so, he can but, make a snail race interesting. Exactly. That's what I mean. Like, if you're commentating on this game, or if you're uh, a fan of this game, or whatever the case may be, you have to make it interesting for somebody else who's outside the game or being introduced to this for the very first time. And I think it's on the job of the commentators, on the job of the players on the field, to make the game interesting. Nobody else can do it but them. So as far as it being visually and a spectacle on television, it has to be made interesting. Otherwise, like, you know, uh, people won't get geared up for it. And also the U.S. needs to at least look somewhat competitive. Like at least the men's national team needs to give fans hope that it's not going to be like a bounce out in the group stage or it's not going to be a bounce out in the round in uh in the first round uh outside the group stage or something like that in the round 32 like this has to be coming up uh not th- not for uh 2022 but for the following world cup it has to be there has to be belief that maybe something crazy yeah. can happen maybe they can go on and win it something yeah i think like uh, i agree with Corey. i also think that the best way to do this is to have a solid men's national team that's the first thing that's going to get people that don't Absolutely. even care about the sport behind. They're like, hey, this is something we can be proud of. So I think that is our responsibility to have a proper national team here, which again goes back to grassroots and to develop the talent that we have. Like, why aren't, like, why aren't all these people even in? Like, I don't know. I could go on about it. But um, going back to what um, Corey said about the commentators and making everything more interesting, um, I saw on the MLS's website um, for this tournament, they're actually having um, a lot of new um, interactive um, technologies and um, unique experiences for viewers. I don't really, I haven't seen really what this entails, but I'm hoping that they're also thinking along these lines. Um, I also think that there needs to be an exchange of um, technology. So you know how... Man City is basically owned by the City Football Group that owns um, New York City FC, that owns Man City, that owns uh, a club in Australia, I believe, has a partnership with a club in India also. And it's basically this transfer of technology between clubs in Europe that have been doing this already and clubs over here. So LAFC's sister club is Borussia Dortmund and there's this... uh, you know, continues to like, okay, what are your coaches doing? What are our coaches doing? What are your coaches doing? So just kind of like getting this know-how and implementing it over here, but also keeping, you know, the physical side of the game that the United States is kind of, you know, proud of. It's like, over here, it's like physique, but where is the finesse? So we've gone too far on the, okay, I can run, I'm stronger, I can do this. But it's like, hey, Santi Cazola is literally one of the small David Silva, for that example, is literally one of the smallest players on the field. He's so thin and he'll like he's boring. So it's kind of like you need a little bit of that with all of the, you know, physical stuff that we have in this country. And I hope that we continue to kind of have these partnerships, which will then trickle down to the national team, which will then trickle down to kind of, you know, interest in the game in general. And 
I hope that six years is um, enough to do this, but I fear it might not be because this is more of a long-term project. So maybe we see a glimpse or a, you know, a taste of what could be in 2026 and then in the future bring it back. Um, but I think we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, well, lucky for the U.S. who didn't even qualify for the 2018 World Cup in uh, 2026. They're expanding the qualifying teams from 32 teams to 48 teams. So a lot more games, a lot more teams. It's good already that we're seeing young uh, U.S. men's national team players playing in big, big time uh, uh, leagues like the Bundesliga and the Premier League. Um, And I think that that like I was talking about with Pulisic lining up against like some of the, 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 the top European players around the world that builds up the confidence and it builds them up. And another thing I think also needs to happen also is there needs to be, I don't want to say just like a ushering in of like all these new different players, but I think there needs to be a, a mixing in with the, the current U.S. men's national team players with a new generation of players. Like, obviously, um, it was tough after 2010, and then you, you you see with 2014, like you know, they're you know the U.S. men's national team had kind of moved on from Donovan at that point, and uh, Clint Dempsey was kind of like on his last legs. Howard was kind of on his last legs, and it it seems like everybody still remembers those players and they respect those players for what they did. But now it's the opportunity for this new generation to step in and establish themselves as these new stars and, and, and cement their places in the team. So far, the only like cemented spot in the team is Kristen Pulisic. And, and you kind of don't have a team of at least maybe three or four notable faces that you can be like, okay, we can rely on you at goalkeeper. We can rely on you at center back. We can rely on you as a central midfielder. We can rely on you up top because you'll put the goals in. You know, that kind of it, – it reminds me of, like, um, Claudio Ranieri. Like, he's known as – as a manager, he's known as being the tinker man. And if you're constantly moving pieces in and out, moving pieces in and out, that doesn't allow for chemistry to develop. Chemistry gets developed when yep. you are – constantly on the field 11 guys are on the field and they're playing together winning together losing together drawing together whatever the case may may be they might have to take some lumps now but the hope is that later on they'll be dishing out the lumps and they'll be winning the games and and being able to experience triumph and because they remember all those losses that they had to take at an earlier stage uh because they were playing such hard competition and i think nowadays young players just aren't intimidated or nervous or as scared uh when it comes to the likes of playing against these 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 top teams because their whole thinking is like what do i have to lose if i mess up then what i'm out the team like i remember when bobby wood kind of broke kind of burst onto the scene he was like scoring goals for fun uh there needs to be like a consistent level of play at every single facet of like every single position of the game so that way you're uh, whoever is the manager, like Greg Bol- Greg Berhalter is the manager right now, at least he can have maybe five guys he can rely on and be like, all right, these are my five reliable guys who I know are going to go out and get the job done. And everybody else has to 
match their, their same level of intensity and their same level of play. But I think like one of the things that is, is the difference between the U.S. and other international clubs is that every other international team has talent to where they can just out-talent you. But to win a World Cup, sometimes you don't need – it's not about talent. Winning games is by getting the right result is by any means necessary. If you got to put a, a a a hard foul on some guy, you got to put a hard foul on a guy. You got to not be afraid to to take a nil nil draw. It's like we got a point. We got you know we got a result that we needed to get. You know we took it to penalties. You know we didn't give up a goal. You know you got to just get the job done by any means. And for so long, I think a lot of people get so focused and heavily uh, enraptured with uh like styles like uh Pep Guardiola and Tiki Taka or Arsene Wenger and you know playing beautiful playing beautiful I'm you know you're talking to somebody who enjoys watching you know that type of 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 of, of play but at the same time if it doesn't lead to winning what does it matter if you're playing beautiful like you know if you got to play long ball play long ball if you got to just pack in 11 guys behind the ball, pack 11 guys behind the ball, but have multiple ways for whatever opponent you're coming up against to have like a, a plan going forward. Like we're going to play, uh, we're going to be defensive, but we're going to be counterattacking. We're going to, uh, you know, come at these guys with speed, you know, whatever the case may be, you have to have several different game plans because not every single team is the same and there's different levels to this. So you have to be prepared whoever you come matched up against. Yeah, um, going off what Corey said, I don't think we have the luxury of being able to play the way we want to play. It's like, as long as you get the job done, you get the job done. So maybe that. And I also think it comes down to um, squad depth, like the manager knowing or the coach knowing what and who he has at his disposal to kind of change things around if it's not working, which I don't think we um, still have the luxury of over here. Um, but as we continue to develop talent and as um, talent comes through the pipeline, maybe goes abroad like Pulisic and brings back everything he's learned in the Premier League and shares it over here with his teammates in the national team. But then at the end of the day, you also want his teammates in the national team or other people playing in the national team having those similar experiences. So then you can just kind of magnify that whole process. But yeah, um, there's work to be done, but I think it can be done. Exactly. If, 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 if there's a will, there's a way, you know, if, if, if there, if there is somebody, if there are a group of people who are serious about growing this game or making the U.S. men's national team as much of a powerhouse as the women's national team is, then there, then it can happen. The only thing is, is that will it happen? So, I'm an optimist. It will. Hmm. Let's hope so, because you're going up against the best of the best when it comes to international soccer as well. Yep. 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 But all right, that is going to wrap up our MLS and soccer episode. A big thanks for Shane for coming on to the show. Appreciate you having you on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And we'll definitely keep in touch with the MLS and what's going on in the tournament and see if Nashville ends up dropping out or if another player drops out. Hopefully not. Hopefully this tournament goes as planned and we have a season and it ripples hey, down to the other either side. either nash will or nash won't we'll find out oh my god <laughs> <laughs> the bad <times>. uh, <laughs>
<laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you for All tuning right. in. Any last words, Corey? Uh, I just think that this game is going to expand, and I think that it has to. I just think that it has to. It has no other choice, especially with a World Cup coming here. I think that that gives you hope of even you think about this in a few years from now you'll have the top biggest stars in the world coming to the united states mexico and canada for everybody to see and i'm thinking that that has to at least attract somebody like being able to see mbappe and uh, pogba um um maybe neymar or kevin de bruyne or you know whoever like the top stars from around the world are going to be in our backyard. And I just think that that has to be some level of inspiration to somebody out there to want to get out and and kick a ball around. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, thanks for tuning in. If you guys aren't following us on social media, what are you doing? Come on now, Uh, on Twitter, at the underscore nosebleeds, Instagram, the nosebleeds, Facebook, the nosebleeds podcast that's k-n-o-w-s bleeds check us out on spotify apple Podcasts. you know the deal other than that we out deuces